I invite you to please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis this morning. Genesis chapter 3. Right there in the beginning of your Bibles. Shouldn't have any trouble. Genesis chapter 3. Follow with me as I read beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. Now how did Eve know that? You look up at chapter 2, verse 16, it's what God told Adam. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. That is plain. That is simple. That is the word of God. That was the command that God gave to Adam and Eve. To Adam and then, of course, Adam taught his wife Eve, we are not to eat of that tree. Now look down to verse 4 of chapter 3. The serpent said to the woman, you kids, you know how the serpent You surely shall not die. You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Temptation came. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now let me ask you, is this the Word of God? It is the Word of God. Is it true? It is true. In our day today, people look at this account And they mock it and they make fun of it. They use it in commercials. It's just like a myth, like a fairy tale. Sort of like Jack and the Beanstalk or something like that. It's like folklore. But true? Nah. We're too smart. We're too educated. We're too intelligent to believe that this could possibly be true. And yet it is the word of God. And it is true. It did happen. God created man in his image. Part of that are his communicable attributes. Something we talked about just recently in one of our Wednesday evenings. A communicable attribute of God is that we have understanding, wisdom, The ability to communicate. 
And the reason that God created us in his image with some of these attributes, and I say some because there are some of the attributes of God we certainly do not have, but we do have the ability to understand and to communicate. And so God communicated with Adam. And God communicated with Eve through Adam. You are not to eat of this tree. For in the day that you eat, you will surely die. What happened? Sin entered the world because Eve ate. And gave to her husband Adam. And he ate. And so thus began what we call the fall of man. It was right here with Adam and Eve, or Eve and Adam. Make no mistake, this was not some simple, little, oh, innocent, they just ate from the tree, it looked good, they needed food. No, this was wanton, willful, deliberate disobedience of the Word of God. She disobeyed the clear Word of God, saying, do not eat. From this tree. But she did. And he did. And man fell. And then we have, if you look down a little bit, to verse 16. As God comes and finds them and speaks to them, he condemns their actions and says to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And then he says to the man, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now let me ask you, God said to Adam, Adam taught Eve, you shall not eat of that tree, for on the day you shall eat of that tree, you will surely die. Did they die the day that they ate? No. But what did happen? What did happen was sin entered the world. And with that sin, all of its consequences some of them addressed here by our Lord. Pain and childbirth for the woman. The desire to rule and to lead, but yet she will be led by the man. All of the toil and the hardship spoken of in what man will do and work. It's not that work was a part of the curse. Work was not bad. Man was told to work before the fall, but... Now, work would be a burden and a hardship. Maybe you get a bad boss. 
things will happen that won't be so nice. Sin has entered the world, and with that sin, all of its consequences to Adam's race. Now, please, keep this in mind as we continue our look at the fundamentals of forgiveness. Under our first major heading called the essence of forgiveness, which is the heart of the matter, we saw from Luke chapter 5, and I just want to ask you to turn there for a moment, Luke chapter 5 and other passages that our Lord Jesus went about teaching and preaching the forgiveness of sin. The forgiveness of sins. And here we see that he addresses this one who was a cripple, a paralytic, who was lowered down into this house in front of him through the roof. Here's a guy who needed to be healed. And in our day, a very popular teaching is that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And yet, what is the first thing that Jesus says to this man? Verse 20, seeing his faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Far more important than your health, far more important than your wealth, far more important even than your life is that your sins are forgiven. That's in preparation of the afterlife. That's where we're going to go in our continued study. But that's what we saw in Luke chapter 5 under the heading, The Source of Our Need for Forgiveness. It is, as he says, sin. Your sins are forgiven. The source of our need for forgiveness is our sin. Now, I alluded to this text last week, but I want you to turn there with me today, if you would, please. Romans chapter 5. Now, here's why I want you to look at this. I know that some of you may not be as familiar with some of the scriptures as others. Some of you kids need to learn some of these things as you look at God's word. And what we have here in Romans chapter 5 is the Apostle Paul commenting on and amplifying what we just looked at from Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man. The origin of sin... And here in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul addresses what happened in Genesis chapter 3. It's a great passage and a great chapter, but I have to try to focus in on what we're looking at in what happened with Adam and Eve. So look down, if you would please, first to verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man... And he's talking about Adam. You kids, you'll see that in a moment. Just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. But there's the point we want to have in our minds. If you ever wonder where sin came from, that sin 
that needs to be forgiven, where did it come from? It began with Adam. Through the one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. So just this, just this. Sin entered the world through one man, and the man he's talking about is Adam. Just what we read about in Genesis chapter 3. He doesn't mention Eve here. He deals with that in the book of Corinthians. But he does say here that sin entered through Adam. He is the type of the one who brought sin into the world. Look at verse 18. So then through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through the one act of righteousness, there resulted justification and life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. So here's the contrast. The one who brought sin, Adam. The one who came to forgive sin, Jesus Christ. But sin came into the world through Adam, and that sin has been imputed to all the race, beginning from Adam right through to today. Even the little baby in the womb has the sin of Adam imputed to that boy or that girl. Because David says that from my mother's womb, I was a sinner. All because of what Adam did in Genesis chapter 3. That's where sin came from. And sin is the source of our need for forgiveness. Because we are all sinners. We all need forgiveness. Now, to our next area where we left off last week, we just began to consider what we called the sin which needs to be forgiven. The sin is the source of our need for forgiveness, but let's look at sin which needs to be forgiven. We're seeking to answer the question then, what is sin? What is the biblical definition of sin? And that's when I asked you to turn to that passage in 1 John. If you remember the text, 1, 2, 3, 4, 1 John 3, 4. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4 as we are seeking to give what we would call 
a definition of sin. And clearly in this text, John says that sin is lawlessness. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness for sin or and sin is lawlessness. That is what John says in the text. Now, sin, as we said, would be a breaking of the law, not a keeping of the law. Lawlessness is a breaking of the law. Keeping the law would result in righteousness, not lawlessness. But we've been seeking to answer the question then, to what law is John referring? Because, as you know, and from our studies we have mentioned, that the Old Testament law is broken up into three parts. There are three major divisions in the Old Testament law. We just call it all the law. There are three major divisions in the law. The first division that we addressed last Lord's Day is what we might call the civil law. The civil law is what has to do with what men eat, what people wear, the way that you would tear down your house if it had mold on it. All of these things that were given in the law, referring more or less with how you get along with one another. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, how you practice justice. That's all part of the civil law. Some of that has not changed. You may recall that a few weeks ago I was called to jury duty. In this particular instance, I did not have to actually sit on the jury. The case that I was picked for was dismissed before we ever got to do it. But years ago, I was in Verdure on a murder trial in Fort Lauderdale. And I was very surprised that during this case, I lasted as long as I did before I was dismissed by the defense attorney. I'm sure the prosecutor would have wanted me there. It was a capital case, a murder case, and the death penalty was on the table. The guy had obviously killed one person and attempted to kill another. And me, being the local pastor... They knew I was a pastor. I made it through round one. And I'm still on the jury. Round two comes along. And the prosecutor asks questions and asks questions. He asks me a question or two. The prosecutor is asking everybody else who was still in that jury pool questions. And he's walking away, finishing his questions. He's walking back to the table. And he turns around and he goes... Pastor Hildebrand, do you believe in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Kind of caught me off guard. I said, yes, I do. But had I been thinking more clearly, I would have turned to him and said, yes, we all do. It is the basis of our judicial system. It is called retributive justice. The punishment fits the crime. 
We don't kill people for stealing a loaf of bread. The punishment fits the crime. That's the civil law. And as you can see, the civil law has kept pretty much much of its guts, much of its basis right down to us today. But some of it has changed. Some of it is adapted. And we saw even our Lord Jesus changed what was right to eat and what was not right to eat. He spoke to the people and said, it's not what enters the mouth that matters, but what comes out of the heart. And even Peter on that rooftop saw those visions and said, take and eat. He said, no, I don't want to do that. It's unclean, but I now call it clean. So the civil law has changed and adapted. Much of it, much of its main roots are still there, but it has changed and adapted over the years. So I ask you, is that the law that John's referring to here? No. It's not the law that John is referring to when he says that sin is a breaking of the law. Yes, indeed, if you break the civil law, it's not good, and it's sin. It could be, but that's not the law he's referring to. That law changes and adapts. Let's move on to the second part of the law, that which we would call the ceremonial law. You know what the ceremonial law is? When you look back in your Old Testament, in your Bibles, and you see how God dealt with the nation of Israel, God gave to Israel the law for those civil things, but he also gave to Israel the law for how they were to deal with him, how they were to worship him. Him, what they were to do, even regarding their own sin. That ceremonial law is, as you remember from your reading of the scriptures, God teaching men the ultimate and final sacrifice for sin, as they had a picture of it with the shedding of the blood of the bulls and the goats and the animal sacrifices that the nation of Israel was to do. They saw this all the time when they would come to the city of Jerusalem and to the temple or the, earlier on even the tabernacle when they were moving. But it was there mostly in our minds, the temple where they would sacrifice the animals, a bloody sacrifice that was a picture to them of the atoning for their sins. Over and over again, they saw these animal sacrifices performed by the priests, shedding of blood. Now I ask you, look at the text. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Do you think that's the law he's talking about? I don't think so. For one thing, none of us is involved in shedding any blood of animals. But more importantly than that, the animal sacrifices, the ceremonial law was not changed, was not done away with, but it was fulfilled. It was fulfilled 
in Christ. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law with his own final sacrifice on the cross. Look over to Hebrews, in this case back to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Look down to verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Now, what's he talking about there? Christ is seen as a sacrifice, but not in the temple. I just mentioned that's where you'd go if you were a godly Jew. On those pilgrim feasts, people would come from all around Israel to the temple. And it was only there at the temple that they would see the sacrificing of the bulls and the goats and the animals that would take place. They would sacrifice them on the altar. And then once a year, the high priest would take some of the blood of the bull sacrificed and would take it in to that most holy place, the Holy of Holies, and sprinkle it on the altar of God. This was seen as a picture by the people of the atoning for sins. But here, Jesus comes. He's the high priest. He does not go into that literal brick and mortar holy of holies that was in the temple. No, it says that he was a high priest of the good things to come. And he entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not one that is made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He entered into the very presence of God, the living God. And he gave God there, as it were, himself, his own blood. He was the sacrifice. Much more effective than bulls and goats, for he says, if the blood of goats and bulls And the ashes of a heifer sprinkled those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Much better than bulls and goats. Much better than a sacrifice offered in a brick-and-mortar temple. It was the sacrifice of God Himself in the form of His Son, Jesus, and given to the Father, personally, as it were. He offered Himself to God for us, for our sins. Now, this is where we'll look 
at what it means to have sins forgiven. But now let me ask you to turn back to 1 John 3, 4, and let me ask you the question, do you think that that's what John's talking about here? Do you think John is here talking about when he says that sin is lawlessness, that it's the breaking of the ceremonial law? That's not even possible. So he was not talking about the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was fulfilled in Christ. So Christ is the fulfillment of the ceremonial law, and we don't break that. Some people ignore it. Some people trample it underfoot and despise it. But we don't break it. It's fulfilled in Christ. So, I say to you that it can only be, and it is, the law that John is referring to, the moral law. These are the three parts of the Old Testament law given to the nation of Israel by Moses. The civil law, which is the way we interact with men, retributive justice, an eye for an eye, the things you were to eat, the way you're to build or to the things you were to wear, the way you were to grow your beard if you were a man. Then the ceremonial law, which was the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats, a picture to the nation of Israel of what was to come in Christ. It wasn't those. But the moral law, the third law, the third portion of the law, was never fulfilled. And despite what some say today, it was never done away with. What is the moral law? We have, uh, I guess you can say two words to sum it up, or three. The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is a summation of the moral law. And the moral law is what was given to Moses by God on those stones that Moses brought down to the people. They were destroyed once and redone by God by His finger again. But it is the Ten Commandments that is the moral law of God. This is what John is referring to when he says sin is lawlessness. It is a breaking of the moral law. It is the moral law, the law of God, that teaches us that we are to love God above all. Look, if you would, please, to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, where we have the moral law given in the Scriptures. Verse 1, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. There is one God. All the other idols, all the other gods, all the other pagan things, they're not God. 
Allah is not God. There is one God. It is the God of the Bible. And you are not to have any other gods before Him. So, those who would hold anyone else, anything else, up as a God is breaking the law of God. Those who are running around today thinking that they are gods, thinking that Allah is a God, thinking that Buddha and all the gods there are gods, are sinning because they're breaking the law. There is only one God, and He is the God that we worship in the Bible. He says further, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. So you make an idol, you bow down and worship it, that is sin. That is a breaking of the law. You go to some of these churches around that have all these statues and all these idols and they wonder why we get upset. Because God says don't do it. And they do it anyway. And they call themselves Christians. They have idols in their very buildings. Right in their buildings. All along the walls. All in the front. They have a picture of Jesus here. A statue of Jesus on the cross. Everywhere you look. Idols, idols, idols. And they're supposedly God. It's sin. It is a breaking of the law. Further he says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. The uh, day in which we live, Christ or Jesus Christ is almost an adjective in the vocabularies of some. They hit their finger with a hammer. And they don't say Buddha. They don't say Allah. They take the name of God in vain. It just shows you that this is true. It shows you that this is real. Because they take His name in vain. They don't go, oh, Baal. Or Moloch, or Molech. Oh, Molech. They take the name of God in vain. And then it speaks of remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And we see how much that is done in our day. Football every Sunday. All kinds of sporting events Sunday. NASCAR on Sunday. 
and yet they pray before they race. Don't get me wrong, I like football, and I like NASCAR. But I don't take the Lord's Day to worry about it. I record them (laughs) for a later day. Because I like sports. Most men do. But these are the things that creep in to our society and our way of life. And one of my former pastors who was adamant about these things, who was rather well known among certain circles, had dealings with one of the local professional football players. Think about that. Professional football player. What does that mean? That means, first of all, he's making a ton of money. He's risen to a place that's high above most anybody else in the country has ever been able to attain to. But he's out there knocking heads on the Lord's Day. So he came to this man and he said, Pastor, what should I do? He said, quit. That's hard to do. That's like that rich young ruler that came to Jesus. I've kept all the commandments. What do I need to do? Forget, sell everything and come and follow me. He said, quit and worship God on the Lord's day. And yet we have a society that thinks that this commandment doesn't even exist anymore. Used to be that stores were closed on Sunday. Used to be that people went to church on Sunday. Even if they weren't saved, a lot of people still went to church. But Sunday, the Lord's Sabbath, the day of rest, to worship God and to consider the things of God. This is the Word of God. So will I say to you, if you're out there painting your house, cutting your grass on Sunday that you're sitting, yes, I will. Sin is a breaking of the law. This is the law of God. Keep the Lord's day holy. Now, I'm not going to get into every little area and every little thing. I'm not a legalist. But as we will see, as we look at some of the other definitions of sin, what you do before God better be right, even in your own heart and mind. On the Lord's Day. We go down from there. And he begins to speak about the relationships between men and women. The first thing he says, you kids, listen to what God says. Honor your father and your mother. That your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Honor your father and your mother. What does that mean? Yes, it means to obey them. Yes, it means to listen to them. But it means that you're also supposed to respect them. Don't talk back. 
Respect is something that is all but non-existent to many children in our day. I don't know whether any of you want me to say this or not. I'm going to say it anyway. I don't want kids to call me Mike or Michael. Yes, it is my name, but I am an adult. That's why we try to teach our children, and why not just my children, but our children in this church, that when they address an adult, they address the adult as Mr. or Mrs. and their last name. And I don't care if your name is Hildebrandt. Kids can learn it. Respect for adults. Not doing that is a violation of the law of God. Honor your father and your mother. And I think you will see a big difference in the people's lives as they do so. This is the one that begins it all. And from here, many, many other things follow. But he goes on to say, you shall not murder, not kill, murder. We do not commit murder. These things are so horrendous in our day. It seems as though our whole society is out of control. Children killing people. Children killing children. Our society is rapidly going downhill. Why? They're breaking the law of God. You shall not commit adultery. And we taught through these commandments in great length in our Sunday school years ago. And this includes a whole lot of stuff. Jesus said, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. I know as a man how hard that is today. We all do. But yet, to do so is a violation of the law of God, and it is sin. You shall not steal. So I don't steal. I don't, I'm not a thief. I can remember when I worked in a secular job, and I know from present day, the present day experience of my wife, what she tells me about what goes on in her office, that people are stealing their paychecks because they're not working for them. They waste six out of the eight hours they're there. I saw this when I worked in a landfill big time. It was my place in some instances to be with the supervisor. The supervisor would be driving the truck around. We had a lot of different areas where we worked. And you'd come around a corner to a kind of a secluded area, and there was a bulldozer operator asleep on his machine instead of doing the job that he was told to do because he thought nobody would see him there. Stealing! Theft! Wednesday was tax day. 
Did you steal? Did you make some money under the table and not record it? Not account for it? That is stealing. It is a breaking of the law of God. Then, of course, we have people that are out of control stealing everything they can. What are all these riots about in places? Half the time, it's an excuse for people to steal what they want. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's lying. Good grief. How many people lie? Think nothing of it. Nothing of it. It's easy. Nobody will know. And you've got to keep track of your lies. You realize how prevalent this is? Even the example given from our own government. We have a government that says one thing and does the opposite, but says they're doing what they said, even though they're not. They lie. It's not funny. It's true. It's a breaking of the law. It is what is common in our day. Lies. Lies. And more lies. People go to churches. They fill the pews. And they lie to the preacher, the people, and themselves and say they're Christians when they're not. Lies. I pastored churches filled with liars. And I knew it. And if I knew it, God knew it. Liars. And then the last one he mentions, mentions, the last commandment given is coveting. Coveting is almost foundational for all the others. Why do you steal? Because you covet. Why do you commit adultery? Because you covet. Why do you lie? Because you covet. You want to look good. All these things. You break these, it is sin. Back to our text, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is breaking God's law. And the law God gives teaches us what sin is. That's where we're headed next week. But before we close this morning, I call on you. I haven't even gotten close to beginning to talk about the forgiveness of God. But we read about it. We read about it in Romans chapter 5. We read about it in Hebrews chapter 9. Sin entered through Adam, but righteousness and forgiveness through Christ. Christ's sacrifice on the cross, once for all, atoned for sin. That's what he was doing there, paying 
for your sin so that your sin may be forgiven. I ask you as you think through your life, even today, even this week, you've broken the law. You need forgiveness. You find it in Christ. I plead with you to come to Him. Settle the account. Know that your sins are forgiven. Because there's no guarantee you will live long enough to hear the rest of this series. And there's no guarantee that I will live long enough to preach it. But you need to be sure that your sins are forgiven. It is life and death in eternity. Let's pray.